All right, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Andrew Farley, and uh, you know, we're going to be talking about God's new way of grace today. Some of you, it's the first day of the semester, the orientation, and what better topic uh, to have as our foundation for a semester at Tyndale than God's grace. So in order to understand God's new way of grace, though, I think we have to go back and understand the old way of the law. So I want to take you back to the very first Promise Keepers Convention. That is, Moses came down from the mountain. Maybe you know the story. He had tablets in hand, and he read everything that was written in the law. He read it to the people of Israel, and their answer, a promise, their answer was, and I quote, we will obey everything written in the book of the law. And of course, you know the Old Testament story. I mean, what was it, five minutes and they were smelting a golden calf and worshiping other gods. In fact, the Old Testament story is a story of failed promises on their part over and over, rededicating, recommitting, we're really going to do it this time, God, only to fail once again. In fact, Hebrews 8 puts it this way, if there had been nothing wrong With the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the covenant? Well, not really. In fact, there was nothing wrong with the law itself. The law we know is holy and perfect and good. The problem is you and me under the law. And that's why it says God found fault with not the law, but the people themselves. And hey, that's us. So the Old Testament story was essentially God in a swivel chair. And in one point, uh, God says, and I turned away from them, says the Lord, because they did not remain faithful. Even their priests could not remain faithful. And so this was the Old Testament story of God in a barbershop chair going round and round, turning away when they were unfaithful. Of course, the New Testament story is the polar opposite of that. The Bible tells us that even when we are faithless, God remains faithful and that his face is always toward us. Hebrews 7 says the former regulation, that is the old covenant, is set aside because it was weak and useless some pretty strong words, it says the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope, that is the new covenant of grace, a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Maybe you found yourself at some point in your life saying, God, I want to draw near to you. I want to be clean. I want to be close. This passage in Hebrews is announcing that there's one way that there's only one way to draw near to God. It's not through a performance-based, law-based system. It's through the new way of God's grace. How many of you this morning have an iPhone 1 with you? Anybody, iPhone 1? Uh, Looks like it's ready to disappear, right? Well, the Bible actually says this about the old covenant. It says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete just like the iPhone 1. Why is the iPhone 1 obsolete? Because there's iPhone 2, right? And iPhone 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, and whoa, behold, there's even 6S. 
and it's like the size of a television, huh? I've got one, and yeah, I'm kind of bragging at this point, but I've got, a, I've got a six, and it's big, and it renders iPhone 1 obsolete. The Bible says what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear, just like iPhone 1. Now, you may have a question at this point. I'm saying the old way of the law is obsolete, it's aging, the Bible says it's weak, the Bible says it's useless, the Bible says it makes nothing perfect. So what about the Ten Commandments? I mean, it seems like the Ten Commandments might be an exception to that. We Christians, we fight for the Ten Commandments to be on the walls of our churches. Maybe in the United States, we want them on our courthouse walls. We're looking to the Ten as if as if they're an exception. Well, let's see what the Apostle Paul says about the Ten Commandments. Second Corinthians chapter 3, he's talking about a ministry, and I want you to notice what specifically, what ministry he's talking about here. He's talking about a ministry that is engraved in letters on stone. Now, you may know that there's 613 laws in the Old Testament, 613. How many of those were written on stone? Only 10. So in context here, we are talking about the 10 commandments themselves. Watch this. He says, it's a ministry that brought death. Secondly, he says, it is a ministry that condemns people. This ministry, engraved in letters on stone, it brought death. It came with a certain glory, fading though it was. The ministry that condemns people, it was glorious, but how much more glorious is the new way that brings righteousness? Now, maybe you're not convinced. Maybe you thought, well, we're dead to the ceremonial law. As Christians, we're not under the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system, but we still need the moral law to keep us, you know, free from sin and on the right road. Well, let's take a look at Romans 7 for just a minute. And remember that Romans 7, the context of it was Paul's struggle with coveting. Where does thou shalt not covet come from? Well, again, it comes not from the ceremonial law. It comes from the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? And so here in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul is saying that sin actually took opportunity through the commandment. Sin gained an opportunity through one of the Ten Commandments. Which one? Thou shalt not covet. And it says, sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. And then, and then the Apostle Paul announces the solution. And here it is. Apart from the law, sin is dead. You know what that means? It means that under the law, sin is alive. You put me under a thou shall not covet law, and all I'm going to want to do is covet. Let's try this on. I mean, let's do a little 15-second experiment here. For 15 seconds, I want to put you under one law. You ready for this? Thou shalt not think about a purple leprechaun. Ready? Go. All right, how's it going? Have you got victory? You, you, a couple, three? Yes, good for you. But you came in here this morning. I mean, just think about it. You came in here this morning totally leprechaun free. You hadn't thought about a leprechaun all day. 
and I put you under one law, thou shalt not think about a leprechaun, and suddenly there's purple leprechauns left, right, and center. A silly example, but you see what I'm saying. The apostle Paul is saying it. He's saying that under the covet law, coveting of every kind happened, and the answer is to live apart from law under God's grace. Now, a very common message, a very popular message today is that we need a part of the law, right? Not the ceremonial law, but the moral law. We need a part of the law and to trust that to stay on the right road. But you'll notice that the Apostle Paul is saying, no, it's not a part of the law that we need. In fact, we need to live apart from law so that sin is dead. How's that going to work? It only works one way because we've got the indwelling Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is self-control. He'll never, ever lead us into sin. So some people, though, it seems like today the Christian church is divided into a bunch of denominations, and largely it may be based on some views concerning the law and some other matters. People go to the buffet line of law, and they say, well, I don't want the ceremonial law, Uh, I don't want the sacrificial system or the ceremonial washings, but as I'm at this buffet line, like at your favorite restaurant, I'll take uh, the Ten Commandments. Wait wait a minute, I don't want to have to keep a Saturday Sabbath. I'll take uh, the Nine Commandments. Yeah, that's what it is. And then others say, well, wait a minute, though, we need, we need to demand 10%, Malachi 3, so now we'll add that in, it's 9 plus 1, look, Ma, a new set of 10. And so we go to the buffet line of law when, in fact, the scripture announces this about God's law. If you want to truly respect God's law, you can't be a cherry picker. If you want to truly respect God's law, we need to see it in all of its glory. 613 things, James 2 puts it this way, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Does that sound like multiple choice to you? I wouldn't want to flirt with that. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. You'll notice that it's an all or nothing proposition. We don't have the right to pick and choose. Now, if you're following what I'm saying, you might think, is he, is he saying that we should, you know, throw out the Old Testament, that we should disregard the Old Testament? No way. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the inspired word of God. But let's say you're watching a Alfred Hitchcock film. Are you going to watch that film and then turn it off with 30 minutes left? Of course not. Why not? Because at the end of that film, there's a surprise ending, isn't there? And that surprise ending is going to cause you to want to go back and revisit everything that happened before in light of the new information you have. There's a surprise ending in the gospel as well. The surprise ending in the gospel is this. Hey, Christian, you are dead to the law. You are not under the law. You are not supervised by the law. Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe, Romans says. And so I'm invited to enjoy the surprise ending and then look back on the Old Testament with a brand new perspective. How many of you have been to a 3D movie? 
I'll never forget my first 3D movie. I was doing what everybody else was doing. I was doing this with the glasses, you know? I wanted to see what it looked like with and without, and with and without. I'll tell you, without those 3D shades on, nothing lines up, right? It's just a big blur, but you drop those 3D glasses over your eyes, and suddenly it is a technicolor dream in your face. It is beautiful, and everything lines up. Here's what I'm saying. When you read the Old Testament, do you have your new covenant glasses on? If not, nothing's going to line up. Now, what's so great about this new way, the new covenant? When I was a kid, my mom, she wouldn't let me swear to God. You know, if you swore to God in our household, you were in big trouble fast. But there's one guy who can swear to God, and that's God. God swore to himself. That's what's so great about the new covenant way. God swore to himself. Here in Hebrews 6, we see it. It says, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. He interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things. What are those unchangeable things? God and God. So that by two unchangeable things. Are you changeable? I'm changeable. Thank God it's not a promise between me and him. It's a promise between him and him. And so by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie and also it's impossible for God to lie, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Hey, Christian, what's been anchoring you? What is anchoring you today? Is it your promises to God or is it God's promise to himself? A big question that's out there in the Christian world is, can you lose your salvation? And quickly after that question comes, but what if I? You know those four words, but what if I? But what if I commit the same sin over and over and over again? To that I would say, welcome to planet earth. James says we all stumble in many ways. But what if I commit a really big sin? But what if I am not always faithful? But what if I, but what if I, but what if I? You see what's at the center of that equation? A big fat I. It's all about me and my faithfulness? No, no. The new covenant is all about God and his promise to God. So where are we in this? Well, you see me there. I'm, I'm caught in the middle. I'm basically a a beneficiary of God's promise to himself. What if it's not about you? What if Christianity is not about you proving yourself to God? What if real Christianity is about letting God prove himself to you? Amen? Not a real charismatic crowd, are you? Can we get some flags in here or something? Animal noises up front, I'd feel more comfortable. My favorite verse in the Bible, here it is, Hebrews 7. It says, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I love this. It's, it's my favorite passage because it basically says this, Jesus's life is our salvation. The length of Jesus's life 
is the length of our salvation. You'll notice that he's able to save us how much? Completely. And then you say, why is he able to save me completely? Well, here's the answer. Because he always lives. So the bottom line is that you will be saved as long as Jesus lives to intercede for you. Your salvation, the length of your salvation is tied up in the length of Jesus's life. He will live forever. You will be saved forever. So I want to take you back to the Old Testament again, and I want to talk about a forbidden piece of furniture. This right here was a forbidden piece of furniture in the temple, in the tabernacle. You say, why? Well, imagine it. Imagine on the Day of Atonement, you walk into the tabernacle thousands of years ago, and there's your high priest, and he's kicked back in a lazy boy chair, and he looks at you and he says, what's up? I mean, what's that going to communicate to you? This guy is sitting down on the job. He's got no work left. And so God would not allow this impression of seatedness. He would not allow it to be given to Israel. Instead, the Bible tells us that day after day, every priest in the Old Testament, what did they do? Not sit. It says every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. Over and over, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, our new covenant priest, Jesus Christ, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He did the unthinkable, he did the illegal, he did the forbidden. He sat down and he announced something, didn't he? He announced that it is finished. You know, kids do this. After a good meal, they say, all gone, right? That's basically what the gospel is. Through Jesus Christ, our sins are all gone. Our relationship with the old way of law-based religion all gone. Who we used to be in Adam, all gone. We're born again to a new way of life. And so, you know, it seems like today we need to think about sitting down with Jesus. I wonder, Christian, what, what position are you in? Are you running around Toronto trying to get right and stay right, trying to get clean and get forgiven and stay forgiven? Are you suffering from the Martha syndrome? Martha, 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 trying to get right and get clean? Or are you willing to sit down with Jesus Christ and agree with him that you are a forgiven person? Jesus will never die again for your sins. And it worked the first time. So let's do the math and celebrate. It's amazing, though, a popular theory today is, oh, yeah, you're forgiven up until salvation for all of your sins, but now it's up to you to stay forgiven and stay cleansed through a, a ritual that you do with God. Interesting. So you're saying the gospel got worse because you got saved. The best strategy then would be get saved on your deathbed 
and then there's fewer sins to manage before you meet your maker. (laughs) Do you see it? What if it's not about us and our memory and our legal pad and our many, many apologies? What if it's about Jesus Christ and his blood? And what if it's actually finished? How many of your sins were in the future when Christ died? All of them. Yesterday's sins, today's sins, even tomorrow's sins, they were all in the future when Christ died. He looked down the timeline of your sins and he took them all away. I remember them no more. We need to be acquainted with God's economy. I mean, not too long ago, there was a government bailout in the United States. I think it impacted Canada as well. But there were people down at the banks and they had tears in their eyes. They had an apology on their lips. They had sorrow in their hearts, but the bank, the bank didn't care. The bank just wanted to get paid, right? Why? Because we have a money-driven economy, not an apology-driven economy, a money-driven economy. Well, with God, God has a blood-based economy for sins. I can be very sorry for my sins, and that's healthy. I can regret my sins and turn from them, and that's healthy. But I'll tell you what, blood will never be shed again for my sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So are you a forgiven person, or are you a person who still needs to get forgiven? Which is it? If God is not swooping down out of heaven to hang Jesus Christ on a cross again, then how forgiven are you? You'll notice the Bible tells us how forgiven we are in past tense. Here in Colossians 2, it says he forgave, past tense, he forgave us all our sins. Then you'll notice that 1 John chapter 2 as well, it says, I write you dear children because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. You want to honor his name? Then count your sins as being totally forgiven forever. You want to honor the finished work of Jesus Christ? Then don't try to help the finished work of Christ be finished. It's already over. It's a settled issue. Jesus will never do anything again about your sins. He already did it, and it worked. Ephesians 4 puts it this way, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You'll notice that this is not the way of please forgive in order to earn forgiveness. No, this is please forgive others because God already forgave you. Calvary changed everything. Hebrews 10 puts it this way in past tense. It says, their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, past tense, there's no longer any sacrifice for sins. You guys ever seen this movie Groundhog Day? Of course you have because it's on over and over and over again, right, at Christmas time. And it's, it's, it's about a guy who's trapped in a day and he's got to do the day over and over and over till he gets it perfect. You know what this verse is saying? Is that for Jesus, there's no Groundhog Day. He got it right the first time. There's no longer any sacrifice for sins. 
Jesus Christ will never die again. He got it right. No repeat needed. So I'm a professor at Texas Tech. Maybe, maybe we can have a little quiz now. I'd like to ask you, how many sins have you committed in your life? Yeah, I'd like some numbers. One time I had a guy, one time I had a guy yell out, three. I said, well, that makes four. <laughs> but the reality is, I mean, come on. You've committed thousands of sins, millions of sins. Uh, in this section over here, billions of sins, huh? I know you. All right, now, how many of those have you remembered to confess? Uh-oh, that, that's a smaller number, isn't it? Much smaller. So what are you going to do? I mean, if it's about your memory and your legal pad and your apology, then you're up a creek, aren't you? But if it's about Jesus Christ and his memory in taking away all of your sins, not some of them, well, now that makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? What if it's not an apology-driven system? What if it's a blood-based system? And what if it really is finished? Well, the obvious question then is you're saying, I don't have to beg and plead and hope and wait for God to forgive me after I sin? Well, then what should I do when I sin? Here's a crazy idea, stop. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? I mean, Paul said to the guy who was stealing, right? There were people that were stealing, and he says, stop stealing. You're going through town, grabbing people's stuff. Paul's answer is stop stealing, turn, get a job, work with your hands, and give to those in need. But he never says that the guy has to get down and hope and wait and beg and plead for God to forgive him. Because in Christ, we are forgiven people. Now, sin, let me, let me take a side note. I'm going to go over here to the side for a side note. I hate sin. Sin never pays off. Sin is ugly. As a Christian, I've got a new heart. I believe my heart does not desire sin. I had an old heart that desired sin. God did a heart surgery. He did a DNA swap. He calls it the new creation. He calls it the new self. He says, behold, I've given you a new heart and a new spirit, and I've put my spirit within you. So I hate sin. Sin is ugly. What should I do when I sin? How about stop, drop, and roll? Get away from it. Now, this also works well during a fire. But you see what I'm saying? If you were to do a search for the phrase ask forgiveness or ask for forgiveness in the New Testament letters, you're going to come up with a big fat zero. There is no waiting, begging, pleading, hoping for God to forgive you. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven people. You see what we've done? We're trying to motivate people to behave by hijacking the forgiveness hijacking the forgiveness never made anybody behave. It doesn't work. Instead of hijacking the forgiveness, let's teach the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then when people say, well, then should we just go on sinning so that grace will increase? Here's the reason we give them. 
Instead of saying no because you won't be forgiven, instead of saying no because who knows if God will forgive you, instead of that approach, how about we say what Paul said? How can we continue in sin? We've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Christian, do you know what your heart looks like? Are you under the delusion that sin is going to pay off? Are you under the delusion that you want to sin? Romans 6 says, we used to be slaves of sin, but now we have become obedient from the heart. We've got a new heart. We've got a new set of desires. Concluding here, it says Titus 2 teaches us about the grace of God. It says the grace of God brings salvation. Everybody knows that, right? Check on your theology quiz. The grace of God brings salvation. But keep reading with me. It says the grace of God is what teaches us to say no to sin. The grace of God brings salvation. The grace of God teaches us to say no to sin and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. People say you need to tone down grace. You need to balance grace. You need to temper grace. If you're going to temper God's grace, then you're going to temper godliness in your life. If you are going to diminish or balance out God's grace with some other approach, then you are going to diminish godliness and self-controlled living in your life. It is all by grace. It is all by God's spirit. And he will never lead us into sin. God's new way of grace brings us freedom from law-based living. God's new way of grace brings us freedom from guilt. God's new way of grace brings us freedom from sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today, this opportunity to celebrate Jesus, to put the Son of God on a pedestal and say, wow, and thank you. There may be people here today that we just didn't see it. We didn't see how big the work of Jesus Christ is. And Father, by faith, we just want to look to you and say that wow and that thank you. We thank you that Jesus Christ died for all of our sins, not leaving one out. We thank you that Jesus Christ died to free us from law-based living. We thank you, Father, that your grace and your heart and your love is the real answer to our sin struggle. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.